Welcome to the Vienna Coffee House Conversations. My name is Ivan Vevoda, and I head the Europe's Futures Fellowship Program at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, a project generously funded by the Erste Foundation. It is a pleasure to host at this Viennese coffee house, virtual coffee house table, Albena Asmanova, currently a fellow with the Institute, who is an associate professor of social and political thought at the University of Kent, based at the Brussels School of International Studies. Albena has a wide-ranging career in academia. She taught at the New School for Social Research at Sciences Po in Paris and is the author of two books. Her first book, The Scandal of Reason, A Critical Theory of Political Judgment, published in 2012, and latest last year, Capitalism on Edge, How Fighting Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia, a book, by the way, that has just been translated into the German language. Albena originates from Bulgaria and was active in the distant movement in the early days of the transition to democracy in the late 80s and early 90s. Albena, I'd like us to uh, touch upon the key themes of your book on precarity, uh, Capitalism on Edge. Why is capitalism on edge and why have you singled out precarity as this key focal issue? Thank you, Ivan. First of all, let me say how uh, happy to be uh, speaking within this format. And I want to disclose for the audience something that they're not seeing, that actually this coffee house is very much like the format of the salons of the 18th century. In what particular aspects, that is very, not very well known, there was no food or drinks served at those salons. It was sheer intellectual discourse. And this is what we are doing right now. Intellectual food. <laughs> purely intellectual food. People would gather for the sake of being together and talking, while nowadays there's a lot of eating and drinking going on too. But this is not happening here, and actually that could be rather distracting. So to your question about how precarity has put capitalism on edge, and when I say on edge, I do not mean that it is about to fall, it is about to end. But capitalism has become rather nervous. We have some of the richest and the most powerful people in the world at uh, Davos talking about uh, inequality and talking about the environmental crisis. So these people are uncomfortable. There is no celebration of capitalism as endless creation of prosperity and happiness for all. That conversation is done. And yet I, I'm saying capitalism is not in crisis in the sense of the economic crisis of difficulties, of incapacity to continue uh, its course. But there is a general disgruntlement with the kind of lives it is creating, even for the affluent, even for the labor market insiders. And this is exactly the new point that is happening in modernity, in this verging between capitalism and modernity, because it's very important that we acknowledge what comes from modernity as this acceleration of life and what comes from capitalism with this impetus to pursue profit, right? So we need to be careful not to collapse the two things. But as these two tendencies converge, we have arrived at a point in history 
when we can achieve all the affluence, and we have, Western societies have achieved a lot of affluence, even if it is not spread equally, but it all has come at a price of incredible waste of human life, of societal energies, and of the environment. So uh, Václav Havel, you might remember, had this uh, insight and this word, samopohyp. He was saying uh, that both capitalism and socialism are creating these dynamics of self-waste, of human, societal, and environmental self-waste. And we see this happening very broadly right now. To describe this, I'm using the word the massification of precarity. Guy Standing, this wonderful British sociology, Guy Standing has, uh, Guy Standing, sorry, Guy, I used the French uh, version, Guy Standing has uh, this great concept, the precariat, which is akin to the proletariat. So that describes the fate the existence of the uh, the most poor, of the least advantaged members of our societies, poorly paid, horrible employment. But I'm using this term to describe a general state of this, you know, the young bankers at Morgan Stanley and, and at the big financial institutions working 90 hours a week and pleading their employers to cap their working week at 80 hours. That was indeed a very shocking news yes. item to read about two weeks ago. Yes. And, and 80 hours as a minimum, 80 incredible. hours as a minimum. They'll well, be happy with 80 where hours. Where have the victories of the Front Populaire in France in 1936 on the eight-hour working day gone? I mean, we're really... Uh, I mentioned as we were preparing that, you know, we are in the shadow of the 35th anniversary of the Chernobyl crisis. We also saw that the main Oscar went to a film on precarity, Nomadland. It describes in a fictional form or rather documentary what, what it means to live in the precariat. But also if, if we think back both as social scientists and political scientists, people like Ulrich Beck, the German sociologist, wrote about a risk society 30 years ago. Tony Giddens uh, wrote about runaway globalization that you have just talked about, the, the acceleration. Or more recently, the German sociologist Heinz Bude talks about the society of fear. I always remember a definition that Istvan Bibo, the Hungarian historian back in the late 40s, said, speaking about democracy, that it is the absence of, of fear. And we live, as managers say in this VUCA world, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. How do you place yourself in, in this sociological or political sociological stream of thought? What is important for me is to articulate like those dynamics of the process that are linked particularly to the logic of capitalism. And so I observe that, of course, capitalism always creates uncertainty, right? But precarity and risk are not the same things. Risk is also an opportunity. You know, uh, risk is an opportunity for more control of your life, that nobody is you know, telling you what to do. No powerful state, no powerful administration is, is structuring your life, so you are free to undertake that risk. That risk comes with certain gains. So risk in itself is not a bad thing. 
But when we as individuals are burdened with more freedom than actually we can take, with more responsibility is the word, I should say, responsibility to become employable, to stay employable, and, and, and to be more and more employed, now, these are not things that we as individuals or even as communities can, can take on ourselves. And yet, these responsibilities are, are put on us. So that creates a sense of precarity that we cannot deliver on the pseudo-opportunities that are pushed onto us. And that is all linked to a certain political economy, at the core of which is the pursuit of competition in the global economy. So because our states are pursuing this objective of remaining competitive with the likes of China, with the likes of Russia, with you know, the likes of, of countries who do not respect labor and environmental standards as much as, for instance, Europe is committed to. So in order to remain competitive in that environment, there has been more cuts to social spending, so that creates insecurity in terms of education, culture, especially in healthcare, less stable jobs, less stable uh, employment. So all of these are structural factors that disrupt the balance between opportunity and risk. So see, I think that there is an underlying deal, like a legitimation deal in capitalism, that if you take risk, you have to be rewarded with the gains. So this is the basic deal that gains the support of the losers in the game, because if you're playing that game, so the logic of capitalism goes, the more effort you, you, you make, the more risk you take, the higher the likelihood for some sort of a gain. And that gain can be either in money or in more control, as I said. So there's this basic balance that has been disturbed because people are exposed more and more to uh, risk without opportunities of gain. So this is the situation of precarity I describe. And let, let's now talk about this difference or where do they meet and, and why is it that precarity for you is singled out more than inequality in the sequels, in the effects that globalization has had. When you look at statistics in the United States, for example, you see that the famous 1% has skyrocketed, whereas more than you know half the society has remained at a kind of level in median income over three decades, which in turn, of course, produces then political results, and to put it very simply, leads to a Donald Trump winning the elections. And I think that the argument that you're making about, you know, risk and profit in a society like that actually then creates, uh, well, let's use the word very simply, leads to enormous poverty. You look at levels of child poverty and the United States, and you wouldn't believe it's the United States. So how would you argue that precarity versus inequality argument? Right. Now, in order to, to see you know, the, the tension between the two concepts, we have to think about wealth not as a given to be distributed, but as a process of wealth creation. In capitalism, this process is based on individual initiative, 
on a lot of it on private ownership of the means of production, on, on individual investment. People do not produce watches because they love watches. They produce watches because they will get you know, some profit from that. It has an implication if we accept the process of wealth creation as it is. We cannot be complaining about the poor distribution of that process if we do not accept wealth as a value. The next logical step is to be careful when we play with the distributive outcomes, not to damage the process of wealth creation that we have accepted. As economists have established, if some gain more money because they create new jobs, this is in the interest of the poor. So we should be careful not to damage the process of job creation based on private initiative if we don't want to impoverish the poor. So the one thing I'm appealing is to, to look at the process of wealth creation. And if we examine it, we might actually reach the conclusion that the process itself is wrong not simply its distributive outcomes, right? But there is another thing we need to spot. Why are we so disturbed with wealth inequality? Wealth inequality has always been part of the deal. So the question for me is how come? But not to this extent. Not to this extent. But then the question is uh, what extent of inequality and how do you set the measure, right? So as a sociologist or social psychologist, for me, it's interesting to see why are we so justifiably, I mean, I'm not saying it's not justifiable, but it is symptomatic of something going on. Why are we so disturbed? Well, on one hand, it's easy to measure inequality, to report it in striking terms and grab the attention of people. But on everyday level, usually people do not notice the inequality and do not care about it because they do not notice it. We notice rampant poverty, but we do not notice exactly who has how much. So the fact that we are so disturbed nowadays is a symptomatic of something else. It's a symptomatic that individual wealth matters. When does individual wealth matter? When we are not sure about survival, about meeting our basic, for instance, health needs, or when we're not sure about the future of our children. So we start worrying about personal wealth, but not even for the classical socialists, not even for Marx. Equality was a value. Remember that the distributive principle of Marx, from everybody according to their capacity to everybody according to their need, that is not material equality. You know, the early socialists, the value was solidarity, not material equality. Even Marx has written in very ardent term against the obsession with equality of wages in the economic and philosophical manuscripts of 44. Mm -hmm. He speaks in very harsh terms against wage equality. And this is because wage equality can, he says in that manuscript, in, in that writing, can only be imposed by force. That means, you know, authoritarian. So just to finish that thought, we are so worried about inequality for two reasons. Because we are haunted by insecurity and personal wealth matters, but also because in our societies there are mechanisms of transforming personal wealth into political and social influence. And these are the mechanisms we need to fight. Because wealth does not automatically transform into privilege.
this is what we need to fight. So I'd like to ask you about, uh, clearly job creation is, is fundamental for societies, wherever they be. And in terms of globalization, outsourcing has been a way to raise the profits of, of companies and individual entrepreneurship. And I always remember a story when I came to teach in the U.S. in, in Minnesota in 96, a handyman came around. NAFTA had already been signed. Factories were already closing. And he had this very simple sentence. He says, he said, I don't know where my children will find work. Obviously, those jobs went to Mexico, Latin America or China. How does that factor into the argument that you're making? It is very much related to the way we create wealth. And we create wealth the means of wealth creation. So automation is part of that game because automation has allowed to produce our lives with much less labor input. Automation also, or digitalization, has allowed through foreign direct investment to dislocate those jobs abroad. And automation will remain with us. Actually, we have to transform into an opportunity. We have the opportunity, like Keynes wrote in the 30s, to free ourselves from hard labor. So we could, could, in my book, the, the strategies I propose are two. We could not repatriate all the production. That would be also unfair to the poor in the rest of the world. But what we need to, what we can do is raise the environmental and labor standards in international trade treaties so that that production is not generated through labor exploitation and pollution. Once you already put that in the rules of globalization, then that would repatriate some of the jobs to to Europe and, and America, but it would also improve the living standards of the whole humanity. So this is one policy way to to solve the problem of jobs. Another way is to think in terms of job sharing. This is my proposal. Because currently there are two fashionable policy proposals to deal with that. The one is job creation, like in the old, you know, the New Deal. But remember this uh, wonderful book, um, Bullshit Jobs, David Graber. He's a psychologist and he says we see these bullshit jobs everywhere. It has a very negative psychological impact on everybody. So people need to do meaningful jobs. So I do not believe in in artificial job creation. On the other hand, the other fashionable solution is universal basic income. Now, that would be wonderful indeed. However, we do not have the means to afford it, especially with the situation of national budgets right now. So what we need to do instead is job sharing. This is a matter of social policy, uh, economic policy. There is a way to do it. But I think that the, the, the thinking needs to be to go in this third alternative. And who, who is spearheading here in practice some of these things? Is it Europe? Is it America? Or none of the above? Well, none of the above is making a, a targeted effort. In America now, there is a talk about job creation through this the Biden plan, uh, through the infrastructure investment. Indeed, it would create some jobs, but that's not a very long-term solution. There is currently not a very targeted approach to that. Let me change focus for a second. You, you are an academic, a professor. You live the daily life 
of a professor with students within the broader societal framework of this society, which is undergoing the various crises that, that we have seen. But there's one that has sort of taken the, the upper edge in discussions and under the code word of, of cancel culture, who is allowed to speak when and, and on what occasions, and, you know, where does one draw the line? Uh, you have just very recently, a few days ago, published an article in Open Democracy under the title Safe Speech versus Free Speech, Higher Education's False Dilemma. What is the argument that you make and what stand do you take in these raging battles? As you know, I grew up under communism, and there was a lot of you know, censorship <laughs> there. We both grew up uh, in that society. So it has been absolutely shocking for me to see another wave of this censoring, of cleansing the space, uh, of the public space. I think it is a, a very dangerous, very sad direction liberal democracies are taking. But we need to admit that there is a real real issues are driving this need of young people to feel safe in campuses, right? So I'm asking first the question of what is driving that? And my answer is, you now it relates to this, um, the growing precariousness of life. So as neoliberal capitalism, or basically capitalism, has made our everyday life so insecure, you know, lack of jobs, a lack of, of certainty, everyday level and security about the future. So the universities are becoming safe havens. And of course, they want to feel safe there. But there is too much of a price to pay for that safety. And this is of not learning how to fight for your point, waiting for some, you know, big power to come and save you. Two points for me are important and, and they are overlooked in that debate, because usually people take the side of safe speech versus free speech. First of all, we need to remember that at the time of uh, the Enlightenment, the idea of, of, of free speech, or even of ancient Greece, came about. It was to empower the weak, to boost their standing vis-a-vis -vis, you know, the oppressive forces, both of society and of the central authority. So we cannot empower the weak if we keep protecting them. We actually turn them into victims in need of protection. So that's a step towards totalitarianism. And the other point is to understand the drive for the need of protection and this is the precarity which is economically, socio-economically engineered, and to fight that. Indeed, there, there's a sense that these, these safe havens that, that some, some seek are really ones that don't then prepare you for life because once you step out of the campus symbolically, then you are confronted with all the goods and evils of the world. And unfortunately, we've seen that history can come back with a vengeance, that fascism and Nazism are not simply a pure thing of history books, but that it can return in a variety of forms. My country, Yugoslavia, disappeared at the end of the 20th century in the worst way with some of the worst European evils coming back. And I believe, and as, as I think you do in what you're saying, is that students and everyone has to be confronted with that past, even though it's very difficult to hear. Absolutely. That's the only way to do it. Also, I think there is a, a, a very imminent danger for the very intellectuals that are imposing this 
censure, you know, this safe speech idea, is that we start to impose this censuring of the thought on ourselves. And you might well remember that it is self-censure that is the end of free thought. I see this happening around me, and that's the highest price a liberal democracy will pay for the road taken. Yes, I, I, as you know, I, I lived in America until four years ago uh, in Washington for six years. And as a European, as someone who grew up, uh, as you did, under, under communism, the whole framework of political correctness seemed to go overboard. This is not in any way to disrespect the rights of minorities of, of anyone, but the impossibility to say something on, on a number of issues because people would, if you said one word, say, oh, you know, this, this is not politically correct. I think it's stifling for, you know, all aspects of societal life. It is stifling and it is also, I see it as one of the grievances of, of the populists. Actually, they are not maybe racist in their desire to offend minorities, but they are aggravated, they are insulted by the hubris with which the liberal left is telling them this is right, this is wrong. This is actually an assault on their dignity and part at least Part of the reaction is this negation or going against this oppressive culture of... Indeed, I, I think there's a way to steer between, you know, these opposites while fully respecting language that is not disrespectful to anyone. One simply has to learn how to not, you know, offend someone, even though in one's own language you might think it's not offensive. Yeah. But no, that's not the way to do it. And that can be established only in a dialogue. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why your your punchline at the end, where you're obviously referring to Arjun Apadurai, rather a culture of diversity than a diversity of cultures. cultures. Um, that's right. He's a great thinker. You, I mentioned at, uh, in the introduction that, that as a student you, you were active in the heady days of, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, of wanting to, as many of us did, want to come out into freedom, wanted to return to Europe, as the expression was in, in all of these countries that, that were coming out of communism. How, how does your activism even today, not only in yesteryear, square with your academic work? Are, are you still an engaged intellectual and not purely an ivory tower intellectual? <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid I cannot. <laughs> I'm afraid I cannot help it, although I have all these professional pressures, precarious lives, as one of my critics in, noted that I'm hoping too much that the precariat is going to organize a revolution. She said, try inviting these people to dinner so we don't have time. And yet, and yet I think that very much alike at the time of the dissident, when I joined the dissident regimes, one joined these things out of a sense of injustice. Exactly. I remember that at the time that I joined the movement as a good communist because we were taught that the lives of others matter, that the environment matters, that we have to fight for bigger causes. And so I joined the what later became Ekoglasnost, 
It started with just the, the signature of appealing to the Communist Party to stop the pollution at a factory on the Danube River. At some point I was asked to write the demands of the students and on top of our demands was to end privilege. So we did not want capitalism, right? We, we just wanted an improved, more fair societies. So to fight the, the injustices of our time. So it was, in a way, very pragmatic demand for fighting specific injustices. The big injustice of communism was the privilege between the, you know, the central committee, the lives they had, and what was for, for us mortals. And the lack of freedom, simply, of speech and the association. The lack of freedom of speech, of association, exactly. Political freedoms, basic fairness, stuff like that. So just maybe to open a bracket, but I, I think that thinking beyond capitalism and socialism that we had in those years, mm. unfortunately, prematurely ended. So back to your question of, of what is driving my political activism nowadays is my concerns with the rule of law violations in in the West, especially. Of course, I'm very disturbed by rule of law violations in post-communist countries, but there is nothing surprising there. The countries, they replicate the regimes that fell in 89. I, I wrote this already in an article in 1990 uh, that was published uh, in Praxis International, Dictatorships of Freedom. So I'm not surprised that these things are going on there, but I'm very disturbed that there's rule of law violations in the developed democracies of the West, such as France, Spain, nowadays, there are assaults on the freedom of the press in Austria. So I'm currently conducting an investigation with my friend, uh, intellectual partner, Calypso Nicolaitis, for the European Parliament on the way the European Commission has taken it on itself, the honorable task of monitoring rule of law violations. It's a very important task. It's a very good development. But this needs to be done in a systematic and persistent, coherent way that no country would escape you know, the supervision so that the old democracies are also guilty of rule of law violations and we need to fight that. So this is what um, I'm committing my, my free time to and this is also what I'm doing here as a fellow at the Institute. Uh, I believe that's absolutely an, an essential project and political need if the European Union is to live up to its grand project and retain its credibility as that organization of countries that is based on, on the rule of law, on, on the fundamental values and freedoms. And it has much to do with the, with the precarity because uh, precarity has economic drivers, but it also has political drivers. And it, uh, the rule of law is such a mechanism of stabilization of our lives. So if we lose that basic political stability, we will be even more precarious and more prone to embrace you know, totalitarian solutions. Absolutely. The political dimension is, is fundamental. I, I wholly subscribe to that. We're, we're slowly coming to an end, Albina. And I would like to, as a final question, given the, the framework of, of the project, which is Europe's Futures, how do you see Europe, and you already mentioned something in the answer to this last question on, on the rule of law, how is Europe tackling 
this issue. You know, our colleague Luke van Mindelbar, you know, talks about muddling through in his previous and, and current book and that, you know, following Jean Monnet's ideas that somehow Europe will, through small steps, be able to to move forward, but in in this world where where you know a variety of of grand actors, just to mention the U.S. and China, are sort of on their own paths, do you see Europe really confronting the issues not only that you mentioned but also the kind of geostrategic ones that are facing it? Or in simpler terms, will Europe make it through? <laughs> um. I am hopeful for one particular reason. Now, all of the big successful shifts of Europe have been based on a broad societal kind of push in one direction. Polanyi described the transition to the welfare state as this, you know, the center left, the center right, the Catholic Church, the trade unions, all pushed in one direction. I think that there is some sort of a cross-ideological understanding of the left and the right from, you know, big businesses and the small shop owners and the workers, that we need to have more of a social Europe, that we need to do something against poverty, against inequality and against precarity as the three social concerns of our time. So I'm hopeful on that ground, that there is a very broad societal understanding that we need to do something about it, that we, that centre-right and centre-left are committed to the green agenda. Now, the risk comes from the political guts, that, that politicians seem to know what needs to be done. So everybody seems to know what needs to be done, and at, 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 at the end they kind of withdraw don't go really fully to, into action. This is happening with the rule of law mechanism. Initially, the disbursement of, of, of the funds was supposed to be based on rule of law criteria. Now it has shrunk only to rule of law in financial matters. So this is what, what worries me, that we all know what needs to be done, but there is not much of a political guts to do it. And this is where pressure from below, whether it's civic movement, exactly. citizens in the street, uh, on, on media, etc., and electing then people who will have the leadership courage to actually... Courage to, to do what everybody knows needs to be done. Yeah. Albena, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to have you at this virtual coffee house table, even though we are sitting at, at a table in a, in a recording studio, but I hope we'll be able to have a real coffee very soon. Thank you. I'm counting on it. That was Ivan Veivoda in conversation with Albena Asmanova. In the next Vienna Coffeehouse conversation, Ivan will be talking to Ioannis Armakolas, Assistant Professor in Comparative Politics of Southeast Europe at the University of Macedonia, Thessaloniki. He currently is a non-resident fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna, Austria. You can find more information on the Institute on our website at iwm.at and more information on the Europe's Futures program at europesfutures.eu. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast. We appreciate you tuning in.